Hello, listeners. Before we jump into today's very special episode, I'd like to let you know that Classically Trained now has a Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash classicallytrainedpod. Again, that's patreon.com slash classicallytrainedpod. And yes, I, I just pronounced that differently. It's fine. In any case, at this time, we have no plans to put any of our content behind a paywall. However, all of our episodes, clips, and updates will be collected there. And if you'd like to support us, we'd really appreciate it. Even a few dollars a month from a small handful of our dedicated listeners, that is, you, would help us cover our podcast hosting costs and give Allison and I the breathing room to produce more diverse content for you to enjoy. We have big plans for the coming year and would really love to have the financial stability to make them a reality. Also, if there is bonus content that you'd like to see, let us know. We're always open for feedback and suggestions on Twitter, by email, or in our Patreon comments. And that's all I'll say about that. Just know that if you choose to throw us a few dollars, we'll be forever grateful. And now, here we go. I am Julia, your resident Greek literature And person. I'm Allison, um, and I've got a background in Roman archaeology and late antique studies. And today we are joined by a special guest who has kindly sent us a bio so that I don't have to make stuff up. Victoria Austin has been a lecturer in the classics department at the University of Winnipeg for the past three years, where she's taught numerous courses, including classical mythology and ancient world through film. In fall 2022, she will be taking up the post of Robert Oden Jr. Postdoctoral Fellow in Innovation in the Humanities and Classics at Carleton College in Minnesota. She received her PhD in Classics from King's College London in 2020 and has recently submitted her monograph manuscript on the boundaries of the Roman Garden, part of Bloomsbury's Ancient Environments series. Alongside this research, she is a Wikipedia scholar, and her use of Wikipedia in the classroom has been featured on the Wiki Education blog and in the Winnipeg Free Press. She is also the social media manager for the Peopling the Past project. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Thank you so Welcome much Victoria. for having me. So, so great to be here and chat to you about one of my all-time favorite films to teach. Yes, we are today talking about Hercules, the Disney Hercules, uh, 1997? 1997, that is correct, yes. Yes, we're, we're very excited about this. Um, you've obviously done a lot of like relevant teaching and research as far as classical reception and, and all that stuff. And we've been, we've been holding off on doing our Hercules episode because we really wanted it to be, it, we know it's, it's like a lot of people's favorite. Yes. For various reasons, or least favorite. Yeah, and it's actually the film that I always start my Ancient World Through Film class with as a as a nice way to ease us in before maybe the more the more difficult films to analyze. This this is always one that I think makes people excited to start the course and from there we can kind of build on on the conversations about film and the ancient world and it's good to start with I think a fan a fan favorite or at least a very well-known one even if it's not a favorite. Yeah, I think a lot of people like see this movie as kids or at the very least they've seen like gifs from it and stuff on the internet. It's a very like 
it's very popular. Oh yeah, definitely. And it, and in fact, it, it's interesting because you know I am a huge Disney fan overall. Uh, but actually, interestingly, this was never as a child one of my like top three favorites. Um, but I've come to really appreciate it more as I've been teaching it. So I think it's it's taken on a new life for me. And yeah, it's kind of combining my love for, you know, the ancient world and mythology. And then also I have this background in loving Disney. So I actually text my sister this morning and said, you know, my career has been leading to this moment that I get to discuss. I get to discuss a Disney film about Greek mythology on a podcast. I was like, this is this is what, you know, I could only dream of. So yeah, <laughs> it's great to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you. So before we jump into all of our usual discussion and, and so on, Victoria, could you give us a summary of this film? You obviously, of the three of us, you probably know it best. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, um, and to also give some background um, just on the general kind of film and when it came out. So, as you said, it's released in 1997 and it belongs to kind of the end of quite a famous era for Disney. You know, it's in the late 80s, early 90s, we had that span of really, really super successful Disney films with We had The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, you know, all of those Disney, I think we think of them as the canon films. And, you know, The Lion King was 1994 and so Hercules 1997. So it's kind of at the end of this real kind of golden age, kind of peak, I think for me, particularly peak my childhood era. And really all of these films, and we can talk about this a bit more, have a kind of similar combination of elements. You've got this young hero or heroine, uh, in the case of Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast, and they have to force or confront some kind of danger. They have this cool, you know, often comedic sidekick, and it's all about kind of finding themselves as a as an individual. And, you know, accompanying them is always these fun musical soundtracks that also provide kind of extra commentary on the film. And if you, if you think about those kind of broad characteristics, you can see, you know, they apply to The Little Mermaid and yeah, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Hercules, pretty much follows that same kind of Disney pattern of this era, but with, you know, a few tweaks, obviously, for the for the ancient material. Um, so what we have is, it's an interesting way of looking at Hercules, because it really starts with Hercules right from birth as a child. So the film opens with the pantheon of the gods, and they're assembling to celebrate the birth of Hercules. And in the film, he is the son of Hera and Zeus, who in the film are a nice, happy married couple. Uh, perhaps we can discuss more of that later. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and essentially, um, at this almost like a christening celebration of Hercules, um, Hades shows up, the god Hades, and he's not happy about it. And he very much wants to dispose of Hercules. And we see this initial attempt to get rid of Hercules from the picture. And Hades, as far as he's concerned for a while, um, his kind of minions have have got rid of Hercules. Um, And Hercules grows up unaware of his divine origins. Um, He grows up just seemingly as this kind of clumsy uh, underdog character, very, very classic at the beginning of a Disney film. Uh, But then eventually he goes to, you know, find himself. 
And he, his true father being Zeus, it's revealed to him that his true father is Zeus uh, when he visits the temple of Zeus and the big statue of Zeus miraculously comes to life and it's like, I am your father. It's like one of those moments. Um, and then and then basically he says to Hercules, you know, you need to go and prove that you are a true hero in order to kind of get back in with the gods. And so then we get this whole sequence of events where Hercules is essentially training to be what he thinks is a hero. And he meets with his one of his psychics, Phil. Um, and Phil is kind of a hero trainer. And through this kind of hero training montage that we get, we have this journey of Hercules kind of becoming a hero, um, or so he thinks. He journeys to Thebes with Phil and also with Pegasus, his um, trusty flying horse, that's his cool sidekick. And he meets this girl called Meg. And Hades, at this point, when they arrive in, in Thebes, he realizes that Hercules is in fact alive. And so he sets out to try and get rid of Hercules all over again. And Hercules is basically, goes through all of these trials and tribulations. And we also have the nice love story with him and Meg. And it all comes to a head with Hercules is basically given a choice by Hades. Um, he has to choose either immortality or Meg, who has been kind of being used by Hades to try and undermine um, Hercules. And we have this sequence where Hades is basically trying to overthrow Zeus and become king of the gods. And he unleashes the Titans and basically there's this whole fight. And then towards the end of the film, we have um, a journey to the underworld where Hercules, he goes down to, to find Meg, um, who has who has been sacrificed because he's kind of choosing his immortality. And this, this self-sacrifice of Hercules for his love for Meg, which has uh, been established, it's that that makes him a true hero. And that's the kind of moral <laughs> ending of the story in that, you know, in initially Hercules has this whole, yeah, I've made it, I'm a hero, I've defeated all of these various monsters and that's obviously a nod to um, Hercules's 12 labors in the in the mythology um, but then his father says to him actually no you're, you're still not a true hero and so it's very much a classic Disney you've got to look inside your heart and be this moral hero and and in this self-sacrifice by going into the underworld to try and save Meg that is what creates um, the true hero at the end of the of the story, and as with all good Disney films, you know the the bad person is is vanquished, and everyone lives happily happily ever after on Mount Olympus. Yes, thank you. It's there's like a lot going on in this movie. I mean, it's an hour and a half, and, yeah. and it is a children's movie, so it's like pretty straightforward plot wise. But there's there's a lot to talk about. I mean, our our next sort of traditional thing here is and and I think you said so already but do you like this movie like if I'm looking at it within the kind of Disney canon it was never up there as one of my all-time favorites uh my all-time favorites if you're interested they are Mulan um Robin Hood and Beauty and the Beast they are my, they're uh, my yeah. top three um, Good picks. yeah so so I felt like yeah I liked it but I, I guess I kind of growing up I, I fell in line with the kind of mainstream view of this film that essentially it's not one of Disney's best and that is that tends to be it tends to be viewed you know, against other Disney films. And because for Disney, it wasn't 
as successful as, you know, the other films in this very golden age era of their animation, I think people maybe weren't considering it as a good film in a way that they they would. And, and as I said, I think going back to look at it from the perspective of teaching, I've now grown to appreciate it so much more and I actually really, really enjoy it. I, I enjoy it more now than I did when it initially came out and I don't know if that's partly because maybe as a young girl I was I'm giving away my age here I would have been nine when it came out maybe a Greek mythological hero I'm not the target audience for that maybe that's what I liked maybe that's why I like Beauty and the Beast and Mulan because it's like these female (laughs) you know heroines and, and, and those are the stories that I that I had affinity for. So I think my appreciation for it has come much later, which is very interesting. I think that you you maybe can change your view on a film and I, I like it more as an adult than I did yeah. as a child. What about you, Alison? So I, I feel bad about this, but honestly, this I thought this movie was just like kind of okay. It's kind of worth prefacing this that my parents are anti-Disney. So I have zero (laughs) Disney nostalgia, like nothing at all. So I feel like that that probably plays a part into it. I mean, like the animation is fantastic. The music is well done. Like there's all these things like, you know, that Disney does really well that this movie does really well. But yeah, I mean, the plot's like pretty straightforward and it's not really, yeah, it's a children's movie and it's a pretty pretty simplistic even I think maybe as far as Disney movies go like I mean not having seen a lot of other Disney movies but I feel like some of the ones with female heroines are maybe a little bit more complex yeah I I would definitely agree with that it in terms of the moral framework of this film it's very simplistic it's very good versus evil um you know and we can talk about this more it's very much got a kind of heaven hell dynamic imprinted onto oh, it massively that's on my list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so good it's on my list too um so so i think that that moralistic element as you said, is very simplistic. The narrative itself, pretty simplistic, you know, a, a growing a growing boy, he's finding himself and, you know, there's a love story that's pretty straightforward. Yeah, so, but as you said, in terms of the things that Disney does well, I think, yeah, animation, fantastic. I love the songs. I think they're, they're very underrated as Disney yeah, songs. Yeah, this actually. movie has some of the best. Like, I honestly, like... I just was having nostalgia. Like, I have not seen this movie that many times in my life. I've seen it a couple of times um, over the years for context, 1997. So Allison and I were probably both about six months old when this movie came out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Oh, this is making me feel so old. (laughs) But, like, you know, this one, it, it seems to have been relatively lasting in terms of popularity. So I did see it a couple times as a kid. But, like, I won't say I'm in love and I can go the distance are to me two of like the iconic Disney songs. Um, and like I was singing along with them, even though I haven't seen this movie that many times. Yeah. And I, I can go the distance. I will just, I will, I'm happily, I've put this on Twitter before and I'll happily admit to the world that that is on my running playlist. It is a great, oh, yeah. it is a great motivational song. <laughs> and when I ran my first marathon, my friends played that for me 
in like the final kilometer and I can tell you that's a moment that is that if you're feeling down I was like I can go the distance I can time in this moment (laughs) so yeah I can I can recommend to all runners out there that or or anything that you feel you know Disney's very good at these motivational songs but that one in particular it's it's got a real vibe to it I think yes awesome yeah, I, I did enjoy this movie. You know, it's interesting because, like, yeah, in terms of the actual plot, like, I'm a little meh on this movie. Yeah. But watching it with, like, a critical eye as a classicist, I was like, oh, this is so interesting. And there's a lot of, like, first of all, so many nostalgia, like, trigger moments as, like, ah, I can't fully claim being a 90s kid because I was, like, I was, like, a baby during the 90s, but, like, the, like, 90s nostalgia and, like, this movie is so of its time in, like, a a positive way, all the references and stuff that were, like, oh, this is, this is kind of fun, like, it's enjoyable from that, and, and all the details and, like, the kind of, a lot of the, like, artistic choices are just, like, kind of fun and interesting, so I did enjoy it. I I don't know if this is ever going to be, like, a repeat watch for me, like, it's not Mulan or even, like, Lilo and Stitch, like, there's, like, a couple of movies that kind of came just after this one from that like weird era where disney was making all kinds of weird stuff that were like (laughs) that were like and and also i will own that i was a dreamworks kid oh okay yeah Yeah. um i was like all about like my fate one of my favorite movies when i was a little kid was a spirit oh yeah i'm just gonna expose myself as a horse girl but like (laughs) that and and like the prince of egypt and honestly even like shrek was like yeah. a big hit at like exactly the right time but i i do like this movie quite a lot and i think i think part of maybe the the enduring popularity in the imagination or or why why it's kind of stuck with i mean again i it's not like i'm that much older than you but obviously there's there's like a you know almost 10 year difference and and i've noticed this with my students as well that they have this sense of nostalgia for the movie and initially i was a bit confused because i was thinking well you either had just been born or you know you watched it when you were very young you didn't watch it at the time of release but then i remembered that the disney channel also did like a hercules series spin-off maybe kids of that time they they saw the tv show first maybe or or they they were aware of it and then they also watched the movie kind of in conjunction with that so i think maybe that's why even though as a film it wasn't as critically successful it didn't have as much money the kind of afterlife of it because there was this associated tv series which which i have never watched but i th- i think maybe that speaks to why my students still feel that sense of nostalgia even though they technically you know weren't around for when it was first released um so yeah i i wonder if that has something to do with it as well i also this is like i'm gonna float a wild theory here but like i also think because it's a relatively you know it is a very straightforward plot it is morally uncomplicated and it's about greek mythology which is like understandable and like a touch point for a lot of kids yeah i also wonder like i don't remember watching the tv show but i remember this movie being the subject of like after school care movie Mm. days and stuff like on Fridays and after school care, we would watch movies sometimes and stuff like that, or like school, like movie nights. So I wonder if part of it is also because it is an 
unproblematic film that it was a popular choice for like school teachers to show to their classes. Huh. Yeah, that that's really interesting. That's a wild theory based on nothing. But I remember watching this in school. So, I mean, I think the other thing is like for people around Julia and I's age, like the, the late millennials and the zillennials. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. Uh, like the 90s Disney movies were very much something that like everybody yeah. had seen. Yes, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, aside from you, Allison. Yeah, aside, aside yeah, from well, me. They, you're right. They just, that, that kind of golden age of that, I, I think it did start this era with The Little Mermaid's probably the first one. That's 1989. Going up to like, Mulan and also Tarzan I suppose is kind of like that core of the original you know traditional animated Disney musical thing I mean that that is the era so I think anyone within that millennial even older millennials to to zillennials is that the is that the correct I guess so the like our like our like weird cuspy generation so so they all fit in and I think you're right if you had older siblings like people remember having them on VHS tapes it's like part of that whole yep. 90s subculture that is is like so peak nostalgia at the moment as well so I think it just it just makes people feel good I owned Robin Hood yep Snow White and oh um Aladdin oh yeah a classic and you know what? I also had the weird direct-to-video sequel with Aladdin's weirdly <laughs> silver fox dad. They, they always... They, <laughs> all of those films in the 90s have weird uh, direct-to-video sequels. And, and apparently, I, I was reading up today, actually, just to refresh my memory, there were plans originally to have a straight-to-VHS sequel of Hercules um, charting him going off to the Trojan War, like because his friend because his friend because <laughs> oh, no. his friend Helen had been kidnapped or something. No. Something along these lines. But anyway, they scrapped that wait, and wait. they went with the T V show instead. So we should maybe well, be thankful for this. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. because it's established when he meets Phil. So Phil is a singer yeah. for those yeah. who don't know. When he meets Phil it's established that Achilles is already dead. Exactly. So <laughs> this whole I mean the timeline doesn't work, but you know, um so maybe that's part of it. But yes, there was there was a originally plans I I think you're right in terms of and I suppose you know this is a nice segue into into one of my my points this idea of the morality being so simplistic and how that ties into the depiction of the gods and how really I mean if you think in terms of accuracy I mean and I'm not one to I, I don't really believe it's productive to talk about accuracy when we're talking about mythology anyway uh but that's a whole other conversation maybe we don't tend to talk about accuracy we talk about like i'm always interested in stuff that is directly taken and in places where they choose to differ because i think that you know those are all narrative choices that the creator is making yeah but accuracy in and of itself is not virtue (laughs) exactly okay good okay so we're on the same page and i think this is this is the depiction of the gods here and those the simple moral framework i think is really indicative in this film of the target audience and i I will always talk about this in class and i think this is a good way of getting students to think about the issue and it and it's an easy one to grapple with in terms of why have directors made artistic 
decisions based on who their target audience is. And so it's super easy with a Disney film to be to know what the target audience is. It's young children. And so the story has to be easy for them to understand. The characters have to be easy, often with a simplistic narrative and, and, and a simplistic kind of moral framework. And you can see that all of the changes made in terms of Hercules's life story and, and the general depiction of mythology in this film, it's all they are all made to be in line with that target audience. And I think for, for me, that makes them you know, quote unquote, acceptable changes because, you know, it fits with the mold of what the film is trying to do. Do you think it goes too too far in the Disneyfication of, of Greek mythology? I mean, I do have a thought about this and, and this is related to something else that's on my list, which is that this movie is like, there's a lot of embedded Christian ethic in this film, mm. which, and... And this was definitely an era, and I mean, this is still a problem to, to my, like, Jewish mind, but <laughs> that, but particularly you see it in children's media in, in like, particular, like, I want to say in this era, but in a lot, in, throughout media that, like, this very, like, sort of assumed cultural Christianity often jumps out in children's media more than anything, because, like, we most strongly project our morals, our cultural, like, mores onto what we think is acceptable for children to Mm. see. And so, in this case, it really jumps out as, like, what is acceptable for children to see is to see heaven triumphing over hell. Yeah. And this, like, very wholesome, like, you know, a man is supposed to protect a woman, which to me are, like, and and very, um, but especially the, like, heaven and hell thing and, like, the underworld, like the that the gods on high, and then like the the dark underworld, and this very like I'm gonna go with flamboyant <laughs> devil mm, figure yeah. who has quite literally like Meg has quite literally sold her soul yeah. to the devil, and like I mean you said it yourself, you referred in in your your summary, Victoria, you referred to the first scene with with. Hercules as like a christening yeah, almost. Yeah, it is, yeah. The Christianity does jump out in this one and that is one of my number one pet peeves for classical adaptations because it's like, this is Greek mythology, they weren't Christian. Like why? Uh, uh, <laughs> it makes me crazy every single time. Like I understand why they've done it in terms of, as you said, they are assuming this kind of general undertone of what is acceptable or understandable to children. And it's very telling that they see that Christian moral framework as the kind of default or the the assumed underlying mores. And, And you've got this Olympus as heaven up on high. You've got the underworld as hell. And so you've got a very clear good God in Zeus versus a bad God in Hades and you know that's also reflected one of the things I think 
if you accept that premise, one of the things stylistically I think is done very well is that obviously all the gods on Mount Olympus are these bright, like technicolored, vibrant colors. And then everything with Hades and then the underworld, it's like these bluey gray kind of dark tones. And so you have that visual contrast as well that really emphasizes the difference between the, the good guys on high and, and the bad guys in, in these kind of dark and despairing <laughs> despairing underworld um so so yes i think that kind of very simplistic heaven hell conception of olympus underworld it, it's the most obvious kind of screaming christianity at you but i think you're right that it also just that the overall kind of moral framework of the film it's more subtle but it, it also fits in to that christian understanding i suppose of the world which is very antithetical to how the greeks <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's this very much fits in like the the disney tradition of taking stories that are kind of disturbing and changing them for children <laughs> but i also think it's there's i feel like there's always been a cultural interest in making greek mythology like available to children and I don't know what that's reflecting exactly, but like one thing that I had when I was a kid was I had, I'm sure probably both of you has heard of this, which is Dolaire's book yep. Yep. of Greek myths. And like, I read this book until it literally broke yeah. in half and I had to take it back to the, my school library and taped <laughs> it up for me and I still have it. And so I guess this kind of falls within that interest, that like cultural interest in making that available for children. Um, but I, th I think it is interesting that this one, and I think that's probably because it's part of the Disney canon that it falls so deeply into refre reflecting yeah, Christian Yeah, I mean, morals. and I'll point out one thing, which is that in order to become a true hero, uh, Hercules has to martyr himself. Yes. It is, the, it is a kind of martyrdom. The martyrdom jump Journey, out. yeah. <laughs> which, like, and, like, so this is, and I mean, this is the thing, and, and, and I point this out because, like, as, like, a Jewish person who was not raised, I was not raised super Jewish, so it, this stuff was not noticeable to me as much as a kid, but as an adult looking mm. back and being like, oh, I've been, like, inundated with morals that belong to a culture that isn't really my, it's, like, not really my tradition, my cultural tradition. Um, so it really jumps out to me now, which is why I insistently point it out every time the <laughs> underworld gets cast as hell in a, in a, like Greek myth adaptation, but no, but like the thing is you're, you're right, Alison, like we, we have always sanitized to some degree, the Greek myths to make them available for children, because the thing is they're good stories and we like to tell stories to children. Yeah. And I think, and this is where I kind of grapple with, uh, you know, the changes, particularly in terms of showing Hera and Zeus is like this loving married yeah. couple. Again, it's like a nuclear family and that this idea that you're you're setting up something that that is, you know, I mean you can't you can't get further from the truth when we think about Greek mythology of Zeus being a loving husband. I mean yeah. it's just like, yeah. it's like literally yeah. the opposite. And and it's interesting as well when, when we think about Hera that you know, in the story, she is the antagonist in in Greek mythology. She's the antagonist that, you know, is constantly at war or, or trying to undermine uh, Hercules in some way. And I think it's very interesting that 
Disney did not want to cast um, a woman as the or a mother in that kind of evil role because it, it goes against. I, I was then thinking about other kind of Disney villains, and they're either always male in this era or they're kind of they are female like I was thinking of Ursula in The Little Mermaid but like she she doesn't fit into your kind of um stereotypical femininity framework and so to have Hera it it would go against that you know nice feminine wife mother and and she's like so loving it's like over the top at the beginning like oh my Hercules oh my poor baby and she's she's so distraught and that's that's just completely the opposite and I wonder if on on top of or or a kind of secondary effect of this Christian morality is that you you cannot cast you know a mother or or a motherly figure in that you know uh, evil role because you want you want to present this loving nuclear family as the as the end goal and, and that's always what Hercules is striving to get back to he wants to, like get back to his real fam like he wants to get back to Olympus so that he can re-establish that family dynamic I suppose yeah well and and which also comes along with like bringing his own wife in the form of Meg it's it's extremely like heteronormative oh yeah and and it's so interesting because like yeah as you said like Hera is the the antagonist of Hercules's story in the the originals and like it's to me, it's kind of emblematic of the the opposing sort of ideological methods of control, I guess, in terms of like what we see in terms of patterns of misogyny, because Greek literature loves to cast, loves to show off the villainous matriarch. Mm. We see it again and again, the villainous mother figure who kills her own children or tries to and kills the husband. And like, you know, we see this both on high and among mortals in Greek mythology, Clytemnestra, Medea, Hera, like all of these figures who are just terrible to their children. Whereas I think more modern culture tends towards trying to present the paragon, you know, the the, like Stepford wife. And it's very like, it's, it's, I don't think either is less misogynist than the other, but they are opposite <laughs> strategies. And it's interesting to see one traded to the other. I think it it really does show like the the Disneyfication and the yes. Christianization of this story because you don't there's no reason why the story has to be to sanitize it, there's no reason you have to make Hera a loving mother. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. So that's, that's a choice. Yeah, well, because if you see stuff like Percy Jackson, for example, I think I'm going to have to resist referring to Percy Jackson every five seconds (laughs) because I I think it's I think it's one of the like it's a good comparanda. Yeah, well, it's 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 just one of the most like amazing uses of Greek mythology for children, and it's like okay, it preserves a lot of the dynamics from Greek mythology while still making them appropriate for children, Um, and it's doing that for a purpose. Whereas this one is like okay, well, we have these characters and we have this story but we have a a framework that isn't really that compatible with the original story so we're really there very little of the actual original like story and personalities of the characters are maintained And, and I think you're so right to to make that distinction between the 
how you adapt the material for for children and and is there a way to to make this material appropriate and I think you're right that you you can maintain the the true dynamics of a relationship you could have Hera as an antagonist but also kind of sanitize maybe some of the less child-friendly aspects of mythology and so again there's kind of a, a choice in how much you want to change and I think the way the way that I see this film in terms of is it adapting you know is it reception or, or these kind of things and and what it falls into what I had written down is it almost it takes obviously a lot of create, creative license in terms of Hercules's storyline and instead I see it very much as this kind of fragmentary approach to the story of Hercules and where you've got all of these they've taken aspects of the story and then basically thrown them into a bag jumbled them around a bit and then kind of put them into a new puzzle um, (laughs) with a new framework Uh, and then you've got and I really love this film because it's got plenty of easter egg inside jokes for classicists and I think that's that's great and so it appeals to the classicist on that level and I almost wondered did they they put all of that stuff in to kind of appease us for all of the changes that they made (laughs) to because because you're like oh yeah sure Zeus is definitely not like that but it's so cool that they they bring the muses in and they make a joke to Oedipus and like all of this stuff and so I I kind of then think oh be damned with accuracy (laughs) yeah it's so i mean it's so funny because i one of the things that i had on my list was like it's it's so clearly one of these things where it's not that they didn't do research they obviously did research it's just that they were not interested in telling one of the stories from mythology they were interested in using the sort of characters and framework to tell the story they were interested in telling which i think is its own kind of reception that i think is fine it's just like i hate the thing that i hate is when things are doing that and pretending to be telling the story yes this is why i i can make a distinction between this and troy because troy is like claiming to (laughs) like don't even get me started because my students are we did, we but, did an episode yeah, on that. But, but this is what I mean. Like that, and you've kind of hit the nail on the head there in the difference there. That it, it's when you're claiming to be preserving a sense of accuracy when you're not. That really bugs yeah. me. But mm-hmm. Disney's not trying to do that. Like you said, it, it's using Greek mythology uh, as a kind of vehicle for its own way of telling a story. And as I said, you know the way they have presented Hercules' story, it fits into the exact same pattern of all of the other films of this period when you break it down in terms of it's an individual finding themselves, they have a comedic sidekick, they've got to, you know, look inside their heart, they start as an underdog, they end, you know, happy ending, there's a love story element to it. So, so yeah, I, I just think, as you said, they, they clearly had done their research because of all of the Easter eggs in there. The one but, I noted was Nessus. Yes. The centaur Nessus. Yeah. I was like, wait, so he's going to rescue his like future wife from Nessus, but there's going to be no other details that are the same? Because that's, I mean, that's from, I think, a few places, but like, I know that from the women of Trachis. Like, that's direct. And also like small things like um, when baby Hercules 
fall you know has fallen from olympus and they think that they're trying to to kill him um he grabs the two he grabs two snakes and like bashes their heads together and and that is oh i did and that is from that's kind of taken from an actual story of that's how you know in the mythology it's a sign of hercules's great strength that he wrestles a snake while he's supposedly in his crib and so all of those little details i think is really are really clever and yeah as you said all of these little insights it it shows that they are very aware of the ancient material and so it's not a it's not ignorancy that that's driving these changes to the story it's a choice it's a it's a very specific choice for a specific reason and it's fitting it into that disney mold basically yeah i can really see why they chose this material because there are some things that fit very nicely into this material like i mean because Hercules is a hero in Greek mythology, but it's just it's just replacing their idea idea of hero with our idea of a hero. And the same thing with sort of yeah, like Zeus, like a, like just re sort of molding mm. um, their ideas of of power and what power is supposed to what a powerful pro- person is supposed to do into what ours are and also stuff like the muses like there's literally a chorus yes which i think is great um i love i love how they use that because they they essentially are acting they're kind of taking on that traditional role of the greek chorus really in a a stage spread they they narrate they are they are separate from the story they are commenting they're providing background and context and and so i i really like that kind of meta use of them especially how they they come to life from the the vase at the beginning as well in that opening sequence i think it is very clever that they use them they take that idea of literary inspiration and and they use that as a framing tool for for the narrative i that is one of the aspects i really like i think we talked about this a little bit in our hades town episode allison um but in my opinion musical theater is like the most greek modern genre yes. anytime yeah. i consume a piece of media and i'm like oh we're going to have like songs how greek <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and why not like a, a gospel a gospel choir which i think is just like a very inspired choice for the muses i i just think yeah it's great yeah i i mean just to like wrap up this section a little bit because i want to pivot to talk about some other stuff i i want to say that like i don't really agree with the overall like i feel like the overall ethic and morals of this film are very like over sanitized to a point where i find them like i don't necessarily agree with what they are trying to accomplish. Yeah. Like, but as a piece of reception, I don't have an issue with how they go about it in terms of, in terms of the, the way they, they do the reception, because at least it's very clear that they are doing their own thing. And like, do I think that this is productive in terms of like, like, do I wish that Greek, like adaptations of Greek mythology or Roman history or, or whatever, are we're we're more we're more progressive and more open to like you know advancing a, a a better and and more diverse view of the ancient world to to broaden our views today like yeah that's always what i want but at least this is honest about what it's doing yeah and i and i think 
with with this idea of that it being very open in what it's doing it, it takes me back to that that point i made about troy and that it's not claiming to be anything that it's not and and i think one of the things that i often talk about with my students is you know we look at the film and how it's adapted the material but when we look at film adaptations of the ancient world it also tells us a lot about the time of production and we have to not just think about what are they showing but what does that tell us about the people that created the media i think that's that's one of the things i find so fascinating about reception is that you're you're dealing with two two levels of conversation because you're you're looking at it as a as a film the action in the film you know stylistic acting storyline all of those things but you're also considering why these adaptations have been made and for what purpose and what does that in turn tell us about the kind of production i think you're absolutely right that maybe maybe in other disney films it doesn't maybe as a classicist i'm just kind of thinking out loud here that in in other disney films the kind of moral sweetness of everything maybe doesn't hit me in the face so much because it's in keeping with whatever storyline but maybe because I'm a classicist and I'm so fully aware that the moral framework they're using is almost completely antithetical to to the kind of Greek conception of you know heroism and morals and all of these kind of things that that it's so obvious to me the kind of disconnect there that um I think that's what makes reception study productive in a way because we have a clear comparison to make Mm. and that allows us to more coherently in a way elucidate like what it is that has been changed and maybe even some of why It, it, it illuminates what is driving the changes or what is driving the the presentation of a given story because we have a window into a different way the story might have been told mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Allison, help me. <laughs> no, no, it, it de- no, that definitely does make sense. And yeah, I can definitely relate to what you're saying because it's really hard not to think about how, man, Zeus is a real, <laughs> ter- ter- really terrible. It's just so, so incongruous. <laughs> Especially in sort of like how that gets left out of a lot of modern retellings, like just how terrible Zeus is. You're like, oh, I kind of wish that they didn't portray Zeus in such a sanitized yeah. manner. Um, but yeah, it's, it is definitely achieving what it's trying to achieve. The, the propping up of the patriarchy really jumps out in anything that involves Zeus. <laughs> yeah. I would love to talk about the concept of the hero. Yes. And especially like mm. compared to the modern celebrity, because that's yes. not what a hero was in Greece. No. And this is one of my my main kind of points that I always draw out with this film. And especially when you can then use it as comparison, you know, in, in my class, we kind of look at lots of different mythological film adaptations and we kind of compare the different modes of heroism on display. And again, that conversation, well, what does it tell us about the time of production and what they're trying to put across this moral framework? And you're absolutely right that Hercules in this film, the the kind of mode of heroism is so of its time, it, it's so Disneyfied. But but something that I think is really interesting in the way that 
heroism is depicted in this film is that you've got this debate within Hercules himself between a kind of materialistic almost capitalist view of the hero and that's what he is seeking to begin with he's like I've made it when he's you know got people having little statues of him and he's like look I'm on billboards and like I'm super famous and he thinks initially that that is what makes him a hero it's not until the end where as you said he's kind of martyred himself and it's you know I've looked inside myself and that's the true hero so there's like two two different things going on there and that that conversation I think is quite interesting that he has to go through this journey of what he thinks is a hero versus what is framed as true heroism in the film I don't know if you also noticed that dynamic yeah oh yeah yeah I it's it's so interesting because like the same as what I said before like it's not that I I don't necessarily agree with the conclusion that the film comes to about what heroism actually is like I the Greek model of the hero is is interesting because it can be like a person who did a cool thing. So it's like, you know, the founder of your city might be considered a hero or like, there's like a list of types of Greek hero that I definitely learned when I was in undergrad and have now forgotten and didn't look up on purpose. Um, (laughs) But like that, that like, there's definitely like a looser definition of like just a hero as being like a guy who did a cool thing one time. um, That like, we've almost come back to like societally as like we we will heroize people for anything yeah that's interesting yeah and i think the i think as well like the end the 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 kind of real moral overtone of like they have to be on like a morally good person and as you kind of said that is not embedded in the greek conception of heroism and i think this is why i get so frustrated sometimes when people talk about heroism in these very kind of universalizing ways in and i'm like ancient heroes just do not fit in with that with that conception of this kind of nice you know hero's journey or whatever you want to call it um and disney very much aligns their concept of heroism with i think that much more modern universal way of you know you you are overall a morally and ethically good person that also does good things whereas as you said in the greek conception it's like you could you could be a terrible human being <laughs> like a terrible yeah. moral human being i mean like literally most of the heroes that we we idolize now i mean achilles not a good guy um no. but but like he he's he's 100% a hero and, and even within the greek conception that there's multiple ways of being a hero i mean if we think about the iliad both Achilles and Hector are seen as heroes, but like morally and ethically, they're wildly different personality types. So I think you only have to look at the text to know that they they had multiple ways of being a hero and multiple ways that very much differ from the Disney <laughs> version of heroism, for sure. Well, I think it's kind of the scene that's really interesting is the scene where um, he's trying to get Phil to take him on to teach him to be a hero and they're going through the room and Phil's like everybody I've taught was a failure and I think that's interesting for a few reasons the first of which is that um like tragic (laughs) death is considered a failure which is like not in line with 
Greek mythology no. at all. Like, in some ways, you know, tragic death is just like, it's it's along with the yeah. role of being a hero. Um, especially when you look at a, a figure like, yeah, figures like yeah. Achilles or Hector, that's very much part of their heroism. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting that I, I do, I'm, okay, first of all, I love Phil's, like, spiel of all of the, the yeses. Yeah. Theseus, Odysseus, a lot of yeses, <laughs> the yeses he says. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, yeah, like, that, I don't know, that, like, you have to, I, okay, so here's where I admit that I, that this is something that I, that has been, like, I've fully incorporated into my belief system since I saw, like, a Tumblr post about this uh, a few <laughs> oh, months man. ago. But somebody pointed out on, on social media to me that we, as, like, a culture, tend to frame success in terms of being forever. That, like, mm. if you don't, that, like, any marriage that doesn't last until you both die is a failed marriage. Mm. Any business that does not last forever is a failed business. That, like, something has to last forever in order to have been a success. And I think that, like, jumps out a little bit in this this film, that, like, we view success in terms of immortality. Mm. And, like, we do inherit that from from like classical culture and, and ideology in a certain way that like, I mean, this is, this is the thing that like, and I've popped off about this, about Achilles in the past that like, you know, his whole dilemma is like, do I want to be famous forever? Or do I want to like live a quiet life and then die and be forgotten? And like, he regrets making the choice that he makes, which is for the immortality of, of reputation um, later on. But like, that was really embedded that it was better to be, immortal in your reputation even if it means that you were terrible and or miserable during your life and i mean you see that also just reflected in in general in in the ancient world you know so many writers for example you know that whole trope of well even when i'm gone you know my words will live forever and and as you said that that kind of mark of of the long lasting impact i suppose is such a mark of this form of heroism and yeah I hadn't thought of it as you have just described it before but it's it's really kind of hitting you in the face with and we're literally going to show that by immortality in this film yeah so it's like, like it's like the the most obvious way of representing living forever is to literally live forever in in yeah. physical form as a as a kind of recognizable being as opposed to like a memory or an artifact or something like that and I mean, um, oh, sorry, go ahead, Allison. Yeah, um, I think it's also interesting. This is one of the places where the film, yeah, when he's in that room with Phil, that really the film does nod towards Greek mythology and being like, yeah, all of these heroes had really terrible things happen to them or were really terrible people. And that is kind of, yeah, it is kind of in line with Greek mythology that it's like, okay, well, Hercules does actually get deified. Mm. Like, he's one of the few people who actually gets a good reward for their deeds as opposed to, like, turning into an absolute monster <laughs> like Jason or, like, dying horribly or, yeah. I mean, yeah. did did Jason turn into a monster or is, was he just always a monster? He was <laughs> just always I, a monster. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> this is a Jason yeah. hate podcast. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, uh, again, I, I kind of frame my, my introduction 
in my Greek myth class to like Jason Jason and Theseus as well. It's like I put like uh, the phrase, you know, why why men got to be great until they're great. <laughs> Just like <laughs> these are terrible people that would only su- that only succeeded with a lot of help. Like they're not actually that good on their own, basically. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's so interesting. And I mean, I I think that in terms of like the way we conceptualize modern celebrity mm. as like you know those are those are our our modern heroes in a way is is people who get famous because. The thing is, we talk in terms of, like, heroism as, like, you know, it's, like, being morally good and doing the right thing, but, like, the people who truly get heroized in the sense of being put on a social pedestal and and worshipped as much as we worship anybody in the modern day um, is people who are loud, you know? Mm. Like, like it doesn't really matter. I, I just, like, this is... I, does it really matter what you do if you can get famous doing it is like, I think what it comes back to. And like, that is the thing about Greek heroes as well. And like, it's so interesting that we, we have always tried, or at least this movie in particular really tries to push this idea of like the hero has to be morally good. But I don't know that that has ever been true about the way that we really conceptualize, like who gets heroized in our society. Yeah, it's more, I mean, what you're talking about is more kind of notoriety and, and the whole kind of yeah. concept of all even bad press is good press. Like that idea is just, you've just got to be known. You've, you've got to be out there. And that that's what keeps you up there in the conversation. Um, and, and I suppose an interesting thing when thinking about heroism and maybe this, this obsession maybe at this time, and particularly the Disney mode of this very, very morally pure form of heroism, we've almost seen... Uh, a turning away a, a little bit I think from that with like the modern day Marvel movies which very yeah. much present the more flawed hero I think we would we would say you know they're we see them more as yes again they're doing all of these great things and, and they kind of strive to be morally good but there's also almost been that recognition more recently in film that it's almost impossible to actually have an individual that can live up to those standards you know on a regular or if if on any basis and and with the marvel movies we definitely have had that turn that all of the you know the avengers they are the the quote-unquote heroes of the film but they're all also all shown to have individual flaws and i think in our modern society we that's that's perhaps one of the reasons why those films have been so popular in that we have this affinity because we feel that maybe, well, we we too could be a hero because it it's like reachable because they as heroes are also flawed and they're human. Whereas uh, very much with, with Hercules, he is very not human, quite literally, because he's meant to be divine in this film. So again, it's taking everything at that very, very basic, uncomplicated manner of hero, good, we know that he's good because he's going to be immortal and he's going to be live, he's going to live forever in our memory so that it's like totally uncomplicated yeah and i mean i think it i think there is like an in, to circle back to something quickly there is an incredible irony about a disney movie critiquing celebrity <laughs> culture and especially <laughs> 
especially the selling of toys. Yeah. <laughs> that really got me. I'm like, okay, come on, guys. Your, your entire D- Disney movies are partly a factory to sell toys. So, like, this is a little... It's on the nose. <laughs> it's a little yeah. ironic. Yeah. yeah. But I think, yeah, I think also to, to go back to what you were saying, Victoria, is that there, that's kind of bring me back to thinking about like the dark night very much feels like kind of a cultural turning point mm. and like remembering how everybody was like oh my god it's so dark it's so amazing I think because people maybe kind of I think there's maybe a bit of a cultural exhaustion of like the good hero and so that was kind of refreshing for people even though I, d- I don't really like yeah. <laughs> I I take issue with those movies and same for the Avengers like I remember loving the Avengers when it came out and then like trying to watch it back. I'm like, oh, this is not a good movie. <laughs> but yeah, there was maybe a sort of cultural appetite for that at the time. Well, it's interesting. So The Dark Knight and the first Iron Man both came out in 2008. Ah, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, and I'm thinking, mm. so just thinking, yeah, like Troy was 2004. When was Ale- yeah. when was Alexander? That was also around that time. Yeah, and then Glad- Gladiator... Gladiator was 2000 so it's almost like after after this mm. whole drive of the kind of uh Alexander was also 2004 yeah so so yeah you're right there is kind of a late 2000s shift maybe in although I suppose Maximus in Gladiator is more of a flawed hero uh that's more yeah. complex but yeah. that's Roman history if we're just thinking about the kind of Greek mythology particularly Troy, that again was very much, you know, you had clear heroes, a romantic interest, you know, things were sanitized down to to a particular moral standard that was decided that was not, you know, related to anything in the Greek mythology. But yeah, yeah, it's so fascinating when to consider this notion uh, of heroism and, and that the focus on wealth and fame fame to begin with and, and how is fame different from heroism because I think often we link those two things together but in this film it, it's it's quite interesting in the way they pick those two things apart in a way because we have this materialistic sense that Hercules is aiming towards and and he is convinced that that's what he has to do and then it becomes revealed to him that well for all of those material goods and gains that is not what makes you a true hero and that's like where we go we've dived into the disney deep end with that message like that is just full full disney look inside your heart you know it's very um i'm having like an unformed thought about the difference between like a hero and a celebrity as like somebody that we put up as an ideal but we understand most people are never going to be like that person versus somebody that we all look at and understand that like this is immortal and theoretically we can and should emulate this person or Mm. like want to be like them Mm. even if they're not like and like I just and like I'm kind of thinking about like modern celebrity culture of like everybody knows that not everybody gets to be famous but like there's still this idea of like that being the thing that everybody wants, but we don't necessarily heroize all celebrities. No. But at the same time, like those are the people that we hold up as like the shining idols of our society in a way. So like where, what, I don't know. There's just like an unformed thought that's Mm. that's happening there. Just to kind of riff off of that, what's been super interesting, I think in the pandemic 
is that, well, initially, not so much now, but that's a whole conversation. Initially, it was like the everyday hero, you know? And we kind of reversed away from Mm. celebrity and it became like, look at these, they're just like us and they're heroes, like the heroism of healthcare workers. And then, you know, that quickly lost its political purpose and we we moved on from that narrative. But but yeah, so it's interesting... Again, that distinction between what's celebrity, what's fame, what's heroism, and when those two things overlap and when they don't is a very interesting conversation. I think this film kind of grapples with that in a very interesting way that maybe it didn't set out to do, but I think it does raise some interesting (laughs) questions. Yeah, I don't know if I have like the brain cells or the preformed thoughts to get into all of that, but it's it's definitely interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I so I mean sort of thinking a little bit about this there are definitely like there's sort of a division in famous people that are idolized and famous people that are viewed in a heroic light and famous people that aren't yeah and I mean by certain people the people who come to mind (laughs) who are heroized are Steve Jobs and Elon Musk oh yeah no, because they are right like not by me well not Elon Musk (laughs) or like or Bill Gates we can say yeah yeah well these are there's like there's Culturally, I mean, if you think about sort of, they're very much worshipped by the sort of people who are closer to power. Like, it's very much like the white tech bros Mm. are like, oh, man, I want to be Elon Musk. I want to be Steve Jobs. And the idea of sort of like, there's an idea of like heroic achievement in what they're doing. Even if that idea is like kind of false, you're talking about Elon Musk. He hasn't actually done anything. But it's interesting with you saying that, that it it makes me think a little bit of the way we think of Disney heroes, because it's almost when we're talking about like that kind of Elon Musk heroism, it's like, to me, it's as equally naive as like believing in Hercules as a hero. Mm, There's like that naivete of attaching yourself to an idea that is just not grounded in reality. And and I, I think, I mean, this is getting very deep, but like, I think as a society, we need heroes because we need that, I, that idea of striving towards something. Um, but sometimes we're, it, it's easy to have like a naive conception of that. And, and the Disney for for children if we're thinking of the childlike audience it's playing on that naivete of here's here's an uncomplicated person that we can lift up and there's not there's no nuance yes yeah i think it's really the disney you can really see where disney is like very christian in this Mm. sense because that's it's the sort of heroism that christianity encourages and also that like almost sort of makes more sense within a religious framework right like what makes hercules heroic is that he sacrificed himself right like that's fundamentally what it is and it's like oh well you can sacrifice yourself too you don't need to you know be any great in any other way and which is pretty fundamental to well and that to christianity and that the kind of person that you should hold up as a hero and that you should view as worthy of worship and and accept as your idol in life should be morally uncorrupt and incorruptible and 
you know, and, and I mean, there's a certain list of specific traits, um, you know, obviously the general typical, like kind of hetero patriarchal, like heterosexual white man stuff, but yeah. also just like, um, you know, a martyr and, and a God. And all, again, like the Christianity jumps out that like, there is a certain idea of the person that everybody can be uncritically devoted to mm. that. That is the right kind of person to view in that yeah and that that uncritical devotion kind of brings links into how i often think of like this this kind of tech bro um idolization that that it's like you're either all in or you're all out i feel like there's no Mm. (laughs) you either accept everything or you know you're not part of that group (laughs) it's cultish yeah yeah I mean, people people refer to the cult of Steve yeah. Jobs like that's a that's a word that is very much or the cult of Elon Musk like those are words that are like used mm. in the cultural consciousness to describe yeah. these people. Like, and I mean, if if you are interested in really getting into like the culty mindset of tech bros, I strongly re- I strongly recommend um, Dan Olson folding ideas YouTube video essay about oh, crypto. Interesting. Yes, he did a really good he, and and like NFTs. He did a really. He did a really good breakdown of how that culture works. And I think that's what we're talking about right now is that like we, as humans, we love to prop up idols. We just, we we just do it. We love to prop up idols and, and uh, like it, our brains hate nuance and like we, it takes work to think critically about everything all the time and, and nobody wants to do that all the time. And that's fine, but we have to like recognize that impulse. In it. And that is why we love, we have such an, I mean, I say we, like lots of people like me uh, who, who grew up with Disney. Um, <laughs> that's why I think it's so nostalgic to so many people because, because it reminds us of an uncomplicated time when we weren't. Yeah. When we when we had all of the freedom of childhood and youth of not worrying about all of this nuance, um, and and I think that's why we go back to these uncomplicated stories because they're they're comforting even even though as adults we know that they 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 are not true and they're they're impossible to recreate in reality that kind of uncomplicated good versus evil dynamic. But, but that's why they're so popular, I think, because we, we are craving that simplicity in our heroes because we want them to be uncomplicated because that would make life a lot easier for us. But unfortunately, yeah. you know, the world's not like that. But I think that, that's, um, that, that's just very indicative, I think, of, the, of why people have such nostalgia for, for Disney. And I can just say that I love that we managed to get from Hercules Disney to cryptocurrency, like <laughs> seamlessly. Love a segue. And I'm just like, the the world's colliding here. I mean, you know, it's relevant. But yeah, I just love how we managed to managed to get there. Can I can I bring up something that is kind of related to this? That was another point of conversation. I think there's one aspect of this film that maybe is more complicated than other Disney films, or at least it's trying to be a bit more nuanced. And that is the character of Meg, because I think as a female love interest in 
the film. You know, she's not your typical Disney princess, for example. You know, she's very sarcastic. She's got all of these great one-liners. You know, she, she herself as a character undermines and undercuts that whole damsel in distress you know the very the very opening scene she's like you know I'm a damsel I guess I'm in distress and she's like I don't need saving and and all of this kind of stuff and and I just find that that's maybe the one the one aspect of the story that doesn't maybe follow the Disney mold and I thought that was quite interesting and and as a female character and like you said um I won't say I'm in love like that that song it's just so very different from normal you know one day my prince will come and all of this part of your world and then, you know the the song that she's singing is very very different from your your typical disney princess so so when we're thinking about this very uncomplicated you know patriarchal kind of christian framework i i just wonder how do you think meg fits in with that in, because she does kind of undermine our expectation or or undercut our expectations, I think, of, a, of like a Disney princess. I think, Meg, I think trying to, what you said, is really the operative word. Because there's some things, yeah, that really, the the idea that she's she's like morally complex, like she's made this deal and she's also, she's not sort of, there is definitely a flipping where Hercules is the naive one, right? And Meg has already, I mean, Meg's already been, like, burned by a male love interest before. She has that sort of, like, maturity that you don't normally see in the Disney princess. But there's also a lot of stuff about her character that they kind of end up falling back into the the sort of misogynistic tropes. I mean, her, like, character design and sort of the way, like, she's definitely an image of, of male desire. Oh, yeah. Which is irritating for a Disney movie but that's it like the way she's like she's very sexualized on screen which is kind of depressing for a Disney character like the way she walks away from Hercules her like hips yeah she like sachets away yeah and like the hair flick and she's very kind of provocative in her in her phrasing which but again that's very different because although it's definitely with the kind of male gaze in in mind it it's a different it's a different kind of femininity and like you said it's more sexualized because I think Disney princesses you think of them as kind of pure and you know virginal Mm. almost um whereas she's not she's not that so it it's still got that kind of patriarchal lens but like at the other end of the spectrum maybe in this kind of hyper like sassy sexualized kind of way I don't know I, she's so interesting to me because, like, she's also ultimately, like, she is the agent of the narrative turn in this mm-hmm. film. Like, Hercules doesn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of, like, he does he does what is expected of him as the hero. He goes and he fights and he, like, all of this stuff. And, like, he, he gives up his powers to save the girl and he martyrs himself to save the girl. Like, all of this stuff is very typical. It's actually Meg's decision to, like, again, I mean, it comes back to martyrdom. She sacrifices herself to save him. But she also does it in order, knowing that she will be manipulating the deal that he made with Hades, that if she gets hurt, Hercules will get his strength back. And she puts herself in harm's way, knowing that that will cause the day to be saved. So, Hercules sacrifices himself for love. Meg sacrifices herself to save the world. Yeah. Like, 
she is the agent of the the successful turn of the story like in terms of from the darkest hour to the victory of good of like the triumph of good over evil meg is the one who does that which is so interesting to me when i was watching that i was like hold on a minute like why does Herc get all the credit? <laughs> I mean, so we what know, you're saying is Meg, Meg is the hero. <laughs> we're we're going to say this is our definitive take that Meg is actually that the is, hero of this that film. That is my like hot take <laughs> on this film. But awesome. I approve. I like that. Yeah. She is a very interesting character. And like she definitely is, I think, a an atypical Disney love interest. I mean, she's definitely like... It's interesting because, like, it's so, I was like, ah, uh, I I just want, like, I just want, like, an, I want one of those, like, <laughs> those terrible, like, feminist adaptations that I rag, like, gritty feminist adaptations <laughs> that I rag on all the time that's, like, told from Meg's point of view. <laughs> yeah. So that we can, like, draw out, like, her romantic history and her, like, stru- her struggle with her attraction to Hercules and, like, yeah. her own agency in that moment and, like, really get into... And the fact that, like, honestly, she's... her her She has this conversation at one point with, with Hades about, like, how he's basically holding her freedom over her head. And I was like, see, Meg would be a great character to use to explore, like, parallels with ancient slavery. But, like, yeah. no way are we getting that in a <laughs> Disney movie. So... Now I'm like, damn it! I want like a, I want like a gritty adaptation of Disney's Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but you know, you know, actually, now I'm thinking about it in terms of because I think there's two there's two frames of reference for this film. Ultimately, there's obviously the Greek mythology framework of reference, and there's also the Disney frame of reference. And in this film, these two things are colliding. And now I'm thinking about it. This is obviously 1997, so we have Meg in Hercules and we say she's kind of atypical we're moving away from the classic kind of naive young girl idea of the Disney princess because that's very traditional with you know your Snow White's your Cinderella's even the Little Mermaid that's still very much an Aladdin all princessy kind of stories I'm wondering if Meg kind of in the Disney framework she marks a bit of a shift because after this we also have Mulan which is obviously and 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 in Tar, yeah, and also in Tarzan, I know mm-hmm. like the Jane, Jane character in Tarzan, like she's kind of feisty as well, and like she's she's traveling to a foreign land like on her own, and she she kind of has more of a personality, and she's like I'm not a damsel in distress, like she she's got more agency in that sense. So I wonder if this is this is kind of a turning point in. I, I'd just be interested in in wondering if there's a kind of connection between the kind of late '90s, early 2000s way of of depicting women in the Disney film, and that there there is there is this shift away from the typical Disney princess, and instead we get different versions of female characters. That I think they're still very much from a kind of patriarchal male gaze, but there is at least variety in there. Yeah. This is, like, the rise of what, what is the second wave feminism at this point? And, like, this is, like, around the time when that was really, like, the late 90s was, that stuff was really seeping into the mainstream. Mm. Yeah. Pretty well every single Disney princess that I could think of after that seems to have more agency in their own story. Yeah. Like, I mean, oh, gosh, I saw Tangled a million years ago, but 
I yeah, and and like Brave came after this as well. So so now I'm thinking about it. I I have literally never thought of this before until this conversation. But it does seem that there is when I think of all the very very typical Disney princesses, it's all prior to this film. Yeah, and yeah. everything after it's still it's still pretty patriarchal. <laughs> um, but yeah. but there are they are in different roles. They're not all princesses. Or so, they're doing yeah. different things. I'm gonna say something that's gonna make Allison groan, but what we are talking about is the girl bossification of Disney. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, yes, you are. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is why, with my age, I associate so much with like Mulan and like that period because I'm I'm coming into my teenage years as the girl bossification is taking off. So this is this is possibly this is explaining a lot. This is like therapy for me. This session. <laughs> no, I, we have gotten into so many things where it's like, oh my god, like, and and it's so interesting because like I feel like where you're at in your life when a certain or like what what movies were coming out at a certain era and so on. Like I I feel like that it just. Uh, it just does so much on like what pieces of media were really influential on you as yep. like a young person can say yeah. so much about like what your interests are going to end up being in a way like I and it's so interesting because like this sort of thing like this even the like girl boss type of character which I mean I I'm not gonna lie like I definitely I love these types of characters yeah. as well <laughs> but like I have never I don't know like I I guess I I don't identify with them as much necessarily as like particularly because like as um both as like a queer person and especially um and and so so growing up I particularly identified more with heroines that were particularly I would say averse to romance entirely because the type of romance that I saw on the screen as a kid was like not for me Mm. so there's definitely that like aspect as well it, it, it's just so interesting to yeah like unroll the scrolls of like oh this is like and like it's such a it's not a visible cultural trend until no you get into it like this and it's like oh wait no so that was like no that was like definitely what was happening yeah because because <sighs> from from a distance i'm just like oh all of these disney films in a, in a big heap from my childhood. But when you put them into a timeline and, and think about that time and what age I was at the certain films, it just like makes so much sense in terms of like the, the trends of what's going on and, and who I identified with and at what time. Like, I think probably the reason why I love Beauty and the Beast is because I've always loved reading, like in the mm-hmm. library scene. Mm-hmm. It's like, you just, I mean, I think there's a meme and it says, when, when I grew up, I wasn't interested in, in the print I was interested in the library that Belle has and I'm like I identify (laughs) with that (laughs) and um and yeah it's just it's super interesting and this is why I I I like this film because because as I said you've got those two frameworks the Greek mythology framework and also the Disney framework and it's interesting to to think about how this film fits in with the trend of mythological adaptations but also disney adaptations because there's kind of like two separate things going on there and i think that they're very interesting in their own their own right and i guess as i said this is why i love talking about this film because it combines two of my (laughs) of my great loves in one thing 
Yeah, I, I'm just looking at, at the Disney... The, I, I, like, pulled up a timeline of their theatrical animated releases, and, like, it's so interesting because, yeah, so right after this is, like, Mulan, and so these are the movies that would have been, that I probably would have seen really young, are, like, Mulan, A Bug's Life. Oh, A Bug's, a Bug's Life. Life. I loved that one. That was, that was 98, same as Mulan, Tarzan in 99. A uh, Bug's Life also has girl bossification yep. of, the, oh of the queen ant. Yeah, and then Tarzan. <laughs> this is not what I expected from this episode, <laughs> no. but that's a great line. But then, and then we get, and then we get a bunch of movies for, there's like a period where there's a number of movies that came out that I remember seeing as a young child where Disney moved away from the central romantic plotline. So yeah. The Emperor's New Groove, Lilo mm. and Stitch, oh. Monsters, Inc., Treasure Planet, Finding Nemo, oh. Brother Bear. Like we got a bunch of The Incredibles. We got a bunch of like family centric yes, movies. Yes, family. Yeah, you're right. And, and like the kind of, it was like a child growing up idea that was central to a lot of those the coming of age movie Mm. the friendship movie the family movie were like really big for a while there so i think it's it's interesting because and like those are movies that i identified more with partly because i just hated romantic subplots and partly because you know those were the movies and i think maybe i just had a sort of inbred disgust for romantic subplots because a lot of the movies that i saw as a kid that were popular were like not like that yeah interesting oh it's so interesting okay oh we're introspecting on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) you you can't say we don't have the range because we've really covered we've covered everything in in this so far so and people say you know we don't have things to you know classics isn't relevant whatever we've connected it to everything (laughs) classics you know this has brought us to the very important topics of elon musk and a bug's life exactly i mean (laughs) Name a more ambitious crossover. I mean, that is really... (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway, I love Meg. Um, And I did have one question, which maybe you have an answer for, uh, Victoria. Does Meg have, like, an actual mythological parallel? Like, I just don't know. Or is she just a mashup of Herc's various wives? So, yes... Yes and no, like the name clearly is... Comes from Hercules' wife, Megara. Um, But there are also other myths mishmashes of other parts of Hercules's other wives and also um Hercules famously or infamously murdered Megara so so um they clearly don't show that in this film um so yeah so so they've they've basically taken because Megara was his I believe yes she's his first wife so they're very much obviously and I guess the name is very easy like you can shorten it to Meg whereas his other wives have like much more Greek names the one that I know of and that this is where the rescue from Nessus the centaur is Deianira who I believe is um I don't know how many wives he has but she's his last wife because she kills him by accident yeah exactly (laughs) so they've kind of what they've done is they've kind of taken elements of stories from other wives but conflated them all into this one character and and they've used meg i suppose as kind of grounding it in is she supposed to be magara yes i think so but again not very close other than the name to the to the actual mythology because as i said he ultimately kills her um and then and then goes on in repentance that links him into then going on to doing the 12 labors which again the the um the timeline in the film is kind of moved around because although they don't really talk about the 12 labors all of him 
all of Hercules in the film defeating all of these monsters. It's clearly a nod to that uh, and to those famous stories. But that would, in the real kind of chronology, that's going to happen after Megara's death or murder. So Mm. there's kind of a, a touch of reality. I think they're trying to ground it in a sense of reality to the ancient sources with the name. But really, she's kind of a conflation of many different elements of Hercules's romantic relationships throughout his life. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, I wasn't sure. And and yeah, I mean, there's there's some a, a couple of direct calls to specific tasks. I mean, he fights the Hydra, and there's like a mention. Phil is like listing off jobs that have come in for Hercules mm. at one point, and he he mentions the the Aug- the Augean stables and yes. one other, I think, or the Amazons. There's also oh yeah, he's got the Amazon girls. There's also the they might find a way to do all of them actually, but there's also the boar. Yeah. And the lion are the two other ones that I noticed. Again, it's this fragmentary kind of throwing all the pieces in a bag and picking out a few and throwing, (laughs) creating a new puzzle from it. Let's make this work. Sure, it looks, it kind of looks like Hercules. So let's go with that. Um, Yes, there's there's always an element of truth, I think, to, to many of the references. But again, as we've said, it's been adapted. There's a lot of creative license that's gone into many of these decisions. Yeah. yeah, and I, I noticed there's a few other things that were, they mashed some things together for, I think, reasons that make sense. Yeah. Like, instead of having a the hero trainer be Chiron, they've got the, like, comedy satyr yeah. figure. Uh, that one's on my petty gripe list. Oh. <laughs> oh, see, okay. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna say right now, that, to me, that is a petty gripe, because, like, why would you not just have it be a centaur? But then they had Pegasus, so you've got your horsey element. I guess so, but they can't have more than one horse? I guess not. <laughs> I think the satyr is, like, fundamentally a more comedic yes, I form think. factor than, yeah. a, than a horse man, right? And I, I have to admit, like, Danny DeVito is great as Phil. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> that, that, as soon as I noticed that that was Danny DeVito, I was, like, entirely paying attention yeah. to Danny DeVito's performance. <laughs> like, that took up a large portion of my brain space. Um, I mean, he's hilarious. It's just, to me, that is, like, the number one thing that's, like, why is he a satyr? And, okay, fine, you didn't want another horse guy running around. You didn't want a second centaur, whatever. But, like, why make him Philoctetes and not... Which, like, is not a related name as far as I know. I don't think Philoctetes has any, like, trainer of heroes mythology. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, he is a guy from Greek mythology. Yeah. But, and then... I think it's for the Phil, Julia. I know, but then, like, <laughs> why not... Well, I, I, I know that you just want to have a fun nickname, but, like, for real, why not have it be... There was, there's just, like, such a potentially a good bit in him having showing up and being like, I'm looking for Chiron the centaur, and him being like... Everybody thinks I'm a centaur. Like, I feel like there's a bit in that. Anyways. Oh, <laughs> like uh, like he's created his own mythology. Or something that he's like a centaur. Yeah. I don't know. I just think there's a bit in there. And also, I love Chiron. Like, I think Chiron is really cool. So I'm, when I say petty gripe, I mean petty AF. That is like the pettiest, <laughs> that is one of the pettiest gripes I've ever had. I just think that it's one of the few changes in this film where I'm like, I can maybe understand, like, to be honest, I don't really see the point. And even if I could, I think it's worse, not better, as far as a change that they made. Uh, it's one of the few ones that I'm like, no, I do. I refuse to accept this. I see. That's hilarious because to me, that's a change that completely makes sense Ugh. from like a narrative perspective. But we'll just have I, can, I understand. 
you're that you feel um personally affronted that they've <laughs> gone straight past a bit that they could have could have done. Well, and also they and also they slighted one of my faves. So that's that's <laughs> just I'm just like grumpy and uh I just have to get over it, I guess. But I submit to the audience that I'm grumpy about this one. <laughs> Anywho, the the character is good though. Yeah. And Danny DeVito's performance is excellent. As is, um, James, is it James Woods that voices Hades? He's also fantastic. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. that's, like, that's got to be one of the best. When I'm thinking about Disney voice acting credits, like, he's got, like, that's got to be one of the more memorable and, and yeah, just a real good all-round performance, I think. Although, although, as we said, you know, Hades as being evil is you know, not that accurate to to the ancient sources. I really love what they did with that character and, and James yeah. Woods. James Woods creates a great character. Whether you know, whether you have a problem with the changes made to the conception of Hades, I think, you know, I think most people would agree that his performance as oh. Hades is excellent. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think I think it's telling that whenever you see gifts of Hercules, it's almost entirely Hades. Yes, <laughs> like the Hades gifts are circling the internet yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah. And one one of my one although one of my favorite kind of memes that came out of the pandemic was actually related to this film. Um, I think one of my students sent it to me. It was linked to the scene in Thebes when um, the people are standing around the well and they're like oh was that before the earthquake or after the storm or something and then the yeah. meme is like the meme is like because it was in 2020 when I, I taught the course in 2020 kind of like three months into the pandemic and everyone was obviously like trying to process it and and, P, and my students sent me this meme it said 2020 is is like that scene where they're standing around going was it before the earthquake or after the storm or you know all of these things it's just like this general sense of chaos and, and despair yeah we're, we're experiencing like six simultaneous apocalypses yeah yeah it was kind of it was it was just that kind of oh, we're living through all of this trauma and we don't know what to do with it, so we'll make a joke about it. I felt like that was very on-brand for the yeah. pandemic. That was my main petty gripe that we just covered, but does anybody else have particular, uh, any petty gripes or particular things that you really like in this film that you want to shout out? I guess the one thing that I'm thinking of is like, the degree to which Hades is sort of queer coded in a negative way and how that like fits into the greater pantheon of Disney queer coding characters, queer coding villains. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I just don't really know how I feel about it because it's not as obvious as some other movie, like, like Ursula is obviously like the, the prime person. I think, I think Ursula was actually based on a, specific drag queen yeah. oh really oh i didn't know that yes yeah she, her her design was after like a particular i believe a particular drag queen oh, i remember there being some trivia so yeah she's like a fairly heinous <laughs> example of that yeah yeah hades is subtler but it's there and it's it's annoying <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's like this is very much still I don't know. I'm not in school so i don't know what the the youths are saying <laughs> like in, in high school to clarify but 
like the the early 2000s was still a time when people like gay as an insult was still really going around and the fact that this is specifically like a very like evil feminine male character Mm. is really not it's not it it's it's definitely in line with the sort of what was sort of happening culturally at the time and is also not particularly helpful given the fact that this was being shown to young children Ugh. Ugh. yep i i have two i have like a couple of random comments one of them is that i i have a note in here that's like uh the creators of smallville must have loved this movie because (laughs) i feel i feel like i have like an embedded memory of watching some of the early episodes of smallville which was a it was like a cw drama about like the young clark kent and like him growing up in smallville kansas or whatever and like i just remember there being some identical gags to the gags that are made about herc's inability to manage his super strength that's amazing i just like it was all i could think of during that sequence where herc (laughs) is like being like clumsy and rejected socially because he like has weird powers that he doesn't understand i was like man like Whoever made, like, Smallville started in, what, 2000, it it was, I looked it up, it was 2001. So somebody, somebody saw this and immediately, like, emailed their, their, like, producer buddy to pitch this. But, uh, yeah, and, and, like, I just love, this movie is so 90s. Yeah. It's got the weird mixed, like, 3D animation, which is Oh, I hated that. It's so bad. It's so bad, but, like, it's so classic for this era. Yeah. Some movies execute it better than others. It's painful because the animation is so good. Yeah. And then you see that and you're like, oh, no. Oh, (laughs) you didn't need to do this. You're ruining all of your hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And you know that cost a ton of money to put that very terrible animation in there. For that one sequence of the Hydra fight, like, man, it's not worth it. But... They did do that. <laughs> and then, yeah, like, aside from that, I mean, this movie is, aside from the horrible 3D animation, really lovely to look yeah. at. It's like the, the character designs are so distinctive. I love all of the weird god designs. They're, like, so yes. technicolor. They're so interesting to look. Like, they're just, they're not on screen that much, but they're so cool. I don't know. I There's just, like, a few things about this, the way this movie looks that I really like. To, to kind of jump off of both of those points, um, I did notice that some of the jokes were very similar to... Uh, the jokes surrounding Hades were very similar to some of the jokes that Rick Riordan makes in especially the first Percy Jackson book. Oh. Like, there's, like, a, a death counter over when he, like, throws the soul down. And that's very funny because in the Rick Riordan, in The Lightning Thief, there's, like, a there's like a line that says, like, easy death. <laughs> um, so it's very, like, bureaucratic and... Yeah, so I was like, okay, well, clearly this was the a, a fodder of of jokes. This is the source of source of inspiration yeah. a little bit for Rick Riordan. And then, yeah, what was the other thing you said, Julia? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Well, I've got I've got something that that builds on what you said about like stylistically, and you love the characters. And what one of the one of the very very small points that I wrote down about just things that I. I love um, is that baby Pegasus is so cute that I just oh. love that character when they're and baby Hercules I'm just like that whole I, I almost wish there was like a little bit more of the like real baby Hercules because I just think like visually the little the little cute little Pegasus and then Pegasus then as an adult 
flying horse like then 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 it's like so sassy i'm just like it's just great i love the disney horse sidekick they're always so good and like i don't think pegasus is associated with hercules at all in like mythology but i was like you know what i love this though so i'm gonna great great addition I love the the horse sidekick is actually reminding me. I'm rewatching the new She-Ra right now, and there is also a sassy horse sidekick. <laughs> there so. is there is a great sassy horse sidekick in that show. Yeah. So shout out to whoever came up with the the sassy horse sidekick. It's very funny. It's a good bit. Yeah. Um, and then then the other thing that I wanted to kind of bring up as as something that I just it's like such a small detail. And it's the the actual opening of the film um which Mm. i just think is so clever and for kids they're just like it probably just doesn't register really at all um but the classicist in me and the the art historian in me absolutely loves it um the scene where the film opens and it's kind of in this almost like a it looks like a museum or like an abandoned tomb or something and it's filled with all of these ancient statues and and one of them is the vase that then comes to life with the muses and that that's kind of the the segue into the story but all of those um statues in that scene are actually based on real classical statues which i just think is amazing and i have to give a shout out to um one of my twitter friends christopher polt uh and maybe i'll 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 find the i'll find the link for you so you can put it in um the show notes that he is he did a couple of years ago now this incredible thread on twitter where he basically went through that opening scene sourced all of the statues and then explained the actual real life comparisons from from the ancient statuary that we have uh find it finding the real life counterparts and just when you see that i just think as as we kind of mentioned before the the amount of research and the level of detail in those very very small things they're not necessary to the story, but it really does show in terms of I, I'm impressed by the the authenticity of kind of the world building that went that went into it and the fact that they they actually looked to real life ancient statue counterparts to kind of create that world. Yeah, so I just wanted to give a shout out to to that because I think it, it's just one of these little little Easter eggs for the for the classicists. Um yeah, that, that's one of the things I love. And another kind of cultural reference point that always makes me laugh is that the person that voices um, Hercules is Tate Donovan, who who played uh, one of Rachel Green's love interests in Friends called Joshua. So I find it really hard to, to like not... I'm like, oh, he's Hercules, but he's also joshua in friends so that's a kind of weird crossover there from the 90s so oh the 90s yeah the 90s what a time a disney a disney hero and a recurring character in friends (laughs) like you've really made it there (laughs) truly incredible Yeah, yeah i i just this movie has so many good easter eggs in it i love the like i love herc's like foster parents so cute and like yeah, I don't know. I, I most of my notes are just lines that I like that I wrote down. <laughs> I did. I have one other petty gripe based on a specific line that I wrote down, which I just remembered, which is that Hades uh, gets annoyed at Zeus because 
he like assigned him the underworld, but I'm yes. pretty sure they drew lots. Yes. Uh, so I was like, I, I wrote that down to look up and I was like, hold on a hot second. But to be totally honest, like there's certain things that they clearly changed because of the story that they were telling. And like, yeah, like we've already said this, but yeah. I, I think that that is an, an unproblematic way to do reception. I'm mm. not saying that this is an unproblematic story or that any story that does its reception in this way is an unproblematic story, but I think that it is okay to use this material as a touch point or as an inspiration in order to tell some other story as long mm. as you're clear that that's what you're doing. That is my that is my like big takeaway from from this one, I think. And and it's interesting because we have like Allison and I have talked about a lot of pieces of media that have really done their original material dirty mm. in ways that really like pissed me off. Yeah. And I think this watching this and realizing that I was just not mad about it has really made it clear why it is that that other stuff did make me mad. Yeah. No, I, to yeah. I totally agree in terms of it really makes me think about when when do I care about accuracy and when do I not care? And, and I think there's, there's like a couple, a couple of elements that go into why I kind of don't quote unquote care in this instance. And, and firstly, I don't think it's productive to talk about accuracy when we're talking about mythology, because that's a whole, you know, can of worms. It's not, we're not, we're not having a same it's not the same as talking about historical accuracy because it's part of an ongoing kind of unstatic narrative. Um, and then and then secondly, as we said, because it's very unambiguous in that we are doing a Disney version of this. Like it's not pretending to be anything else. Whereas other films that try to stake this claim of authenticity, I think that does a disservice to the audience because it, it's it's presenting inauthentic knowledge about or, or depictions of the ancient world, but in a way that makes you think it's authentic. Whereas, like, we don't we we don't think a Disney film is authentic. So, like that that pretense has gone out the window. So, I yeah, I agree that in in other instances where accuracy, like with Troy, really really got to me, and you know, it, it enrages me. Like I don't, I don't care with this film because I'm like it's a Disney film. Like of course, like it's it's because a magical film. Yeah, <laughs> they're not pretending to be yeah, accurate. Exactly. Yeah, it's the it's the fakeness of the authenticity that gets me mm -hmm. when when that happens. Mm. Yeah, Victoria, I have a question yes. for you, which is so they set this sort of deadline in store in the story about planets aligning and i'm like i cannot think of a single situation in greek mythology where this has to do with anything like that feels like a new age derived plot mechanism oh so i was wondering if you had thoughts on that you know that is never something i've thought of and i feel like i have no answer to that question at all i'm so sorry <laughs> but um but yeah maybe it didn't stand out to me because i didn't think it was relevant i suppose yeah um i mean it's I, definitely a plot mechanism and yeah i mean the greeks did like astronomy and astrology both i will differentiate and i will but, say that the greeks did both but like i don't know whether they talked about the planets aligning ever and, and it's not 
it, it's definitely not a part of like Hercules canon, for example. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like in that sense. I mean, I wonder if they've done it to because they've kind of got this, you know, the historical city of Thebes, but the the architecture and everything, it's kind of placing it later, like yeah. historically, because it, it kind of looks like I mean, is it trying to be like a fifth century city state in in terms of like I guess I the the historicism of the location? So in that sense, is it trying to kind of contribute to to that sense? Yeah. So I honestly, I I unfortunately do not have any profound answers to that question. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I, th- I think the only reason it stood out to me was just because I was watching it with this critical lens and I was like, oh, well, that seems kind of out of yeah. place here. <laughs> well, yes, you're right. It's def- definitely out of place. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, listeners, we'll, th- we'll throw this one to the listeners. Uh, <laughs> if you know anything about episodes in Greek mythology wherein the planets align, hit us up on Twitter at ClassicallyPod. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and don't and don't come at me in my Twitter comments because I didn't know, please. <laughs> oh, listen, this is a safe space for not knowing. If they're gonna come at you for not knowing about the planets aligning, they're gonna have to come at us about every single time we've said something just wrong on this podcast, yeah. which I'm sure I mean, has been plenty I mean, because if, if anyone's gonna come at me for this podcast, it's gonna be the tech bros, but Oh, yeah. <laughs> I will fight all the tech bros. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I I am perfectly fine with insulting Elon Musk worshippers. In fact, I strive to do so. The, the tech bros can meet me in the back parking lot of days at 2 a.m. And we will throw down. Uh, but no, I, I mean, I have run out of things to say aside from yeah. that it has been really, this conversation has been delightful. Yeah, it really has. And I, and I, I also feel like I've got this clarity of thought about my relationship with Disney from this conversation that I maybe did not have before. I'm so uh, and, happy. Yeah, it, it really, I feel like this is, this, um, this has explained a lot about, uh, yeah, my relationship with Disney and, and which characters I, I feel an affinity for. And I never, I had never thought of that girl bossification of the Disney princess, but oh, I'm not, uh. I'm not going to be able to forget that. And yeah, so Meg, Meg is the beginning of that trend. That's going to be the new hot take I take away from this recording, I think. Yeah, Excellent. love it. Yeah. I can add something deeply profound to this, <laughs> which is the puns in this movie are terrible and I love them. Yes. And that's, that's yeah. really all I have to say on that. 100% <laughs> agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Victoria. And hopefully, you know, we'll... Uh, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll visit further Hercules media at some point. So. Yes. Well, if you if you ever do Rockules, the one with the rock, I oh will God. be back because <laughs> because it's a ride and I I strongly recommend that the our maybe not a straight to VHS sequel, but our sequel to this podcast should be a Rockules one because I have thoughts. <laughs> I, I didn't know that existed. Oh, oh, Alison. Okay, well, this this settles it then. then okay. So we have to return to, right. to do this. Okay. Well, we'll look it's, forward it's to, a plan. to part because two then. It will, um, it's something. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Classically Trained. This podcast is hosted and produced by Allison Marlin and Julia Peroni on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations and on the ancestral land of the Ho-Chunk Nation. You can listen and subscribe to this podcast on our website, classicallytrainedpod.podbean.com, and anywhere podcasts are found. If you'd like to reach us, we can be emailed at classicallytrainedpod at gmail.com, contacted via Twitter at classicallypod, or you can leave a review. If you'd like to support our podcast, you can find us at patreon.com slash classicallytrainedpod, where we also post extras and outtakes. Our next episode will be on the first four volumes of the comic The Wicked and the Divine by Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey. As always, be well, and do not, under any circumstances, do as the Romans did. <laughs>